Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Future of Law, Good Lawyers podcast series dedicated to exploring what is and what could be when it comes to the business of law and how we as lawyers can improve access to legal services for everyone. Each week, we interview thought leaders in the legal profession on how lawyers can evolve with the times and ultimately live more fulfilled lives. It's tough to debate that the legal profession as a whole is behind the times. Why? Well, simply put, because we haven't been forced to change. However, those days of complacency appear to be over. Clients are demanding more transparency and fairness in pricing. Lawyers are demanding modern tools to do their job more effectively. And it seems that every other day you are hearing about some legal tech startup raising a big round of funding. But what exactly can we expect from the technological revolution that is upon us? Well, there is no question there are advantages to be gained. There are also perils to be avoided. Thankfully, the future of legal tech was the topic of conversation at one of our panels at our recent Good Lawyers Summit. I won't lie, I was honored and also a little nervous when I was first asked to moderate this discussion. And once you hear our panelists' CVs, you'll understand why. But as you'll hear, Samuel Dehan, JP Couture, and Ryan Clements, on top of being thought leaders in the tech space, are also great conversationalists and made my life exceedingly easy, which is certainly appreciated when it's your first time moderating a discussion at this level. Our conversation covered many points, including how the legal profession can maintain its humanity while still embracing technological improvements, how lawyers and law firms can harness learnings from other traditional industries that have gone through a similar technological revolution, for example, fintech and health tech, and where the biggest hurdles lie in adopting new technology in our practices. It was, simply put, a delight to have these three panelists join us at our summit, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I know I did. As always, thanks for tuning in. Now on to the show. All right, we're live, or so I've been told, so I'm going to jump right in here. Uh, thank you very much for sticking with us so far. It's been obviously a great day um, and very much looking forward to this legal tech panel. So uh, let me first start off by thanking all three of you for being here today. Uh, I can feel my legal street cred rising just by the mere fact that I get to sit in on here and ask these questions with you, so thank you very much. Uh, with that said, uh, we have a lot to get to. You can see my... my pages of notes here uh, and, uh, and a short time to do it. So uh, what we're going to do is just jump right into the introductions. Uh, Ryan, why don't you kick us off? Uh, can you just give the audience just a, a bit of background on yourself and what got you interested in legal tech? Inviting me to this conference. I think it's a wonderful conference. So uh, my name is uh, Professor Ryan Clements. I'm uh, a faculty at the University of Calgary, a faculty of law. Uh, I did my first law degree at the University of Alberta, graduated in 2007, practiced across most areas of securities and corporate law in a variety of capacities, big law, mid-law, boutique law. I also worked as senior policy advisor at the Alberta Securities Commission. Um, after some years in practice, I went back to school, did my master's at Duke, focusing on fintech regulation, stayed for a doctorate where I focused on systemic risk in financial markets and financial product innovation. And now at the Faculty of Law, I teach securities, uh, fintech law, property law, 
And I'm also quite active in the regulatory advisory space. I sit on committees of the Alberta Securities Commission, the Investment uh, Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada, and actively engage with a variety of levels of government, mostly on fintech uh, regulation. So I'm, I'm interested in tech in a lot of, for a lot of reasons and in a lot of ways, both from my practice experience where I've, I've advised many tech companies through my current scholarship uh, that focuses primarily on the uh, intersection of technology in finance and how it's regulated. And so there's a lot of parallels to legal tech, and I hope to engage in some of those today. So thank you for the invite. Amazing. Yeah. Great to have you here. And uh, I feel like I'm probably going to have to do this uh, to all three of you. Uh, Ryan is also an author and entrepreneur. And most importantly, he taught me entrepreneurial law back when I was a law student at, U at the University of Alberta, which uh, put me on the path that ultimately led to me joining Good Lawyers. So Ryan, I'm not sure whether to thank you or to curse you at this point, <laughs> but uh, I guess we'll see how this plays out for the next couple of years. Uh, but no, uh, seriously, if any of you UFC law students out there, I even if it's not an area of interest, I highly encourage you to take a class with Ryan if you have the opportunity to do so. One of the best teachers I ever had and just gives a very holistic look uh, on law. And uh, so great to have you here, Ryan. Samuel. Thank you. Um, next is you. So uh, if you, same thing to you. Uh, what uh, first, you know, just a bit of background on yourself and what got you interested in legal tech? Yeah, so hi everyone. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, so I'm also a law professor, uh, but my interest is slightly different. So I'm interested in, in uh, conflict resolution and in mediation. And um, so before becoming a full-time academic, I was a European civil servant. Um, I worked first for the European Commission, then I worked for the uh, European Court of Justice, and I spent a little bit of time in a big law firm practicing uh, competition law. So similar story, I went back to school, uh, did a PhD in non-economics, um, and then I was always interested in, in the application of quantitative methods to the law, although at that time I was very skeptical and very critical of the application of these methods until I realized that the problem is not really with the method, but when there's a problem with the result, it's probably related to the uh, developer, those who developed the the research and the choices they made. So, even be, and, and, and in addition, I'm as a dispute resolution professional, I was also a little bit frustrated, especially as an inexperienced dispute resolution professional, I was uh, frustrated with the fact that it's hard to make predictions to resolve disputes when you only rely on case law. I always felt there's a better way to uh, resolve disputes to make it less intuitive by uh, relying on past negotiation, mediation, and dispute settlement agreements. So that's how I end up now at Queens, and I'm leading this this organization called the Conflict Analytics Lab, the CAL, uh, where so it's a research consortium interested in conflict resolution and AI, and mostly we look at how we make how we can make conflict resolution more efficient, more transparent, more accessible by using methods, but not only, by using methods like analytics, machine learning, and deep learning, and so on. So, so I teach ADR and conflict resolution and, and, and law and technology, but my interest is, is in the research is building uh, new technology to improve access to justice and dispute resolution 
Excellent. Thank you so much for that introduction and welcome. And, and I apologize for that very awkward voicemail I left you yesterday. I did not realize what time zone you were in. So hopefully we'll have a smoother <laughs> conversation today. But just again, uh, on top of being uh, a faculty member at Queen's, uh, Samuel is an affiliate faculty member at Harvard Law School. Yes, the Harvard. And, uh, and just if that wasn't enough, enough, also a visiting professor at Cornell University, just in case he needed an extra Ivy League school in there as well. So, uh, but, you know, probably many of you are thinking like me, like, okay, Samuel, you know, you have a dazzling academic career and you've founded my open court, but you know, like, what else do you do? Do you do anything else? And as it turns out, Samuel was also a bronze medalist at the French and UK uh, kickboxing and Taekwondo championships. So Samuel, I think we may need to flush out exactly what you mean by conflict resolution before we jump into this conversation, because uh, just to make sure that it is through a legal lens and not one in the boxing ring. But uh, great it's to have you Different perspectives on conflict resolution. That's right. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's, uh, you, you have different options. Absolutely. Uh, and then obviously, last but not least, JP, you uh, threw a curveball at me. I thought we were going to have you live in the studio, but uh, same to you. If just a brief introduction and how you became uh, interested in the legal tech space. Uh, my name is JP Couture. Uh, I was trained, I did my law degree uh, at Ottawa U, um, as you might notice with the accent. I'm not originally from Calgary. I uh, grew up in Quebec and uh, moved out west uh, after law school. Practiced eight or nine years uh, with a large national law firm in Calgary in their tax group, but I was doing mostly a mix of corporate and tax. Um, uh, I had done a master uh, previously in tax. so. Um, so I was doing a mix of both, um, and then after eight or nine years, I was approached by one of the big four, and uh, I started the corporate law practice for uh, PricewaterhouseCooper, the law firm of PricewaterhouseCooper here in Canada. Um, did that for four years, and then while I was at PricewaterhouseCooper, uh, um, did a lot of work with uh, technology, and we had um, a lot of pressure to innovate, and um, you know, a lot of means as a large firm to acquire technology and um, so um, discover a different technology, discover that there was a bit of a hold somewhere in the, in, in the offering and then started Ingenio about uh, three years ago. Uh, we're essentially a transaction um, legal, a legal tech we're specialized around um, corporate record management and uh, um, I would say routine transactions. Um, so I'm doing this uh, pretty much full time, but I still have a practice. I still practice a little bit in the area with family office. So mostly it's kind of a mix of tax, corporate and, uh, uh, you know, high net worth clients and family. So, yeah. So it's essentially what I've been up to in, in the last uh, 15 years. Yeah, excellent. And uh, you've made one of the more unusual jumps from being a partner at as you mentioned, a major law firm and a major accounting firm back into entrepreneurship, which is something that uh, you don't often see. Uh, anything, just very briefly, anything that triggered that for you? Uh, it's, it, that's, that's actually an excellent question. Um, I was always, I think I was always an entrepreneur uh, long before uh, joining the firms. And, uh, you know, I think in the last four years, larger firms have you know, you're more restricted, you're more in a, in a little bit more in a box. Uh, and I, you know, I thought it was really hard. And, um, you know, that really pushed me um, to leave and, and uh, uh, work on the project that I'm on right now. So excellent. Yeah. 
Excellent. All right. Well, let's turn to the topic at hand, which is the exciting and ever-evolving world of legal tech. Uh, Samuel, since you have the best suit today, I'm going to start with you. And uh, <laughs> just, uh, I think also in the in the fact that my open court uses AI technology to predict the odds of uh, winning a dispute. Um, my question is, how can technological advancements best be leveraged by the legal profession while still ensuring that we maintain our human touch? And again, we hear a lot about you know all these innovations that are coming down the pipe uh, a lot of ai a lot of machine learning these types of things however uh the argument can be made that law at, is intrinsically at least to some degree a, a human endeavor so how do we balance these two uh competing forces at, or at least seemingly competing forces or do you even view it that way yeah no this is a very interesting question so so first i mean i very much agree with you or i don't know if this is your opinion, but law is very much a, a human um, decision. And even the, the decision of judging or making a legal decision in general, legal advice, even if we're talking about the application of a simple rule uh, to uncontested facts, it is a normative decision. And in that sense, so it's been argued that law is reflexive and it's, it's, it's a reflection of many, many uh, factors uh in society so so i don't think uh it is possible to or maybe it will be or but at my opinion is that there are limits serious limits to the computability of law but on both both because technically it is complicated and and also and i don't know if from a rule of law perspective we actually want to hand over uh legal decisions to a machine. So so I think from, and, and if we talk about adjudication in AI, that's where it becomes really problematic. However, when it comes to, to decision-making support, like my open court, so my open court is, an, is a legal aid system powered with AI where we predict the odds of uh, winning a case for self-represented litigants. So in 2029, we started with employment law and we've had about 20,000 users for the last year and a half. Uh, so, and just in Western, uh, Western Canada, so English Canada. And um, so mostly related to employment law question. And now we've expanded to personal injury. And then now yesterday, actually last week, sorry, we launched a new application called the Vaccine Mediator, which is supposed to help uh, victim of vaccine injuries uh to submit a claim to the vaccine uh, canadian vaccine injury program which is like the vaccine court in canada so so in that regard i think i find a few things that are quite interesting for the legal profession and for clients so the first thing that we noticed with my report is that i mean it attracts a very different kind of users probably some people that don't really talk to lawyers and i'm not only talking about uh those, I mean, a very low income, I mean, group of clients, I'm talking also about middle income, who just probably think, you know what, law, a lawyer is not for me. It's not good enough. I mean, I probably am not going to be able to afford it. So, so it, it, it is interesting in the sense that it creates a new market for lawyers. So that's really the benefit for lawyers. But at the same time, also, it is great for legal information. It helps also clients to assess whether they have a case, which is probably the most important question, or it's probably the question that a lot of lawyers try to answer after the first discussion they have with, a, with their clients. So in that sense, it's a good uh, human AI collaboration because the users will just try to find, you know, whether they do have a case 
And then eventually they are matched with a lawyer and the lawyer has a better understanding. It's also a screening process for the lawyer. So it's, 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 a, it's interesting also from a research standpoint, it's like cost cutting, it's a cost cutting decision for law firms. And, and at the same time for the users, it's, it's just, there's more transparency on whether it makes sense for them to hire lawyers. So I see for me this, I mean, and, that, and, and it's hard to predict whether technically uh, uh, AI and computer science will advance to the point that machine will be able to read judgments and they will be able to make a decision based on that. But that, at the moment, it's not possible. And then the second thing is, I don't know if we actually want that to happen. Well, I think you touched on a great point there is that do we want that to happen? And are there lines that potentially do not need to be or need to be uh, respected? Um, but just quick question, just because uh, it's a very fascinating project. And I just recently became uh, aware of it. And, it. and if I'm correct, it's a free tool that anyone can use. And uh, just and maybe just give us a, a little bit of background on that. Do you have both software developers as well as lawyers working on this project to kind of combine those two? Is that how that works? Yeah, yeah, actually, it's, it, and also, it's also a student initiative. So it's part of my course at Queens. So it's called the Conflict Analytics Practicum. So we created large data sets of uh, legal cases, and, and we collaborate with the computer science department and data science department, actually mostly in McGill and Queens. And we built, uh, so lawyers work with law, uh, with computer science uh, researcher to build models. So, and then we deploy the model into a, an online uh, open access application. So, so the users uh, can predict the odds of winning a case. Sometimes it doesn't have to be winning a case. It could be a legal question like, am I an independent contractor or an employee? Am I owed minimum wage? Am I, you know, how much, termination compensation on my own. And then if based on a number of series of questions, we look at the case law, the machine looks at the case law, we'll find uh, relevant past cases. And, and if the user has a decent case, they're matched with a, one of our partner law firms and they just can uh, move forward. So the first step is very much automated and, and, and mostly AI based. And the second phase is I mean, the lawyer takes over and they bring the claim, uh, they bring the claim to court if, if, if they think it, it makes sense. Amazing. Yeah, that's a, that's a very modern project and uh, hopefully we see obviously more like this coming down the pipe. Uh, JP, uh, I'll just throw it to you. Any thoughts on, on uh, you know, the interaction between technology and, uh, and the human element that uh, obviously is still very prevalent in the legal profession? I think I agree with Samuel. I don't see the day where we're going or, or I don't don't foresee the day where um, you know artificial intelligence is going to take over from the human mind to make the decision. Um, but I think I think we're in a phase of where technology can be used to augment and improve the uh, capability of lawyers, uh, not replace it, not substitute it. Um, and I think one example of that, I think a couple of years ago, um, Cleo does this annual study, um, and if you look at the number of like, like just basic skills, like for example, responding back to clients and things like that. Um, you, you know, lawyers were scoring poorly. I think it's, if I remember well, the figure was around 60 to 70% of lawyers wouldn't even respond to initial communication for prospective clients. Um, so the idea there is to, augment, like an idea of augmenting is to essentially help lawyer manage that flow. So by doing that, you're, you're actually improving the human touch because you, you, you do a first, um, a first cleanup, and then you allow the lawyers to be efficient 
in, in responding in improving the human contact and having human contact. Um, so I think there's so this is just one example. I think there's so many areas like this uh, where the technology can be augmented. I mean, and if if you just look um, backward a little bit, um, it has like I mean. You know, I, I wasn't around when lawyers were practicing and using or relying largely on facts, but there's still, you know, if you look at the difference between facts and emails, uh, e-signature versus, you know, wet ink signature. Uh, and, and I think even with the, the situation during COVID this year, you can see how technology has augmented the capability of lawyers. And, you know, in the end, it all boils down to um, time management and practice management in the sense that, there's, you know, time is finite and uh you know there's just so many um, so much time that a lawyer has in the day yeah so if that time is uh, oriented towards doing uh analysis like you know it's better serving the clients in the end but if that time is served doing um more like you know practice management task or simple routine repetitive task then in the end, it's not good for anybody. So yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head. And I can tell you uh, firsthand, I, you know, when I first joined Good Lawyer, I was on the phone with a lot of the clients coming in, uh, helping to match them with the right lawyer in our network. And one of the biggest complaints was exactly that, that I reached out to a bunch of lawyers and no, you're the first people to call us back. And that's, I'm not trying to put a knock on the lawyers per se. Uh, but like you said, I think that the days are just so busy. Uh, and, and these efficiencies hopefully can help lawyers you know, uh, just be able to serve more clients uh, because at, at the moment we're we're not doing obviously the the best job, and and but hopefully these technologies can help us improve. Ryan, I'll uh, I'll get you to end this first question here, uh, and maybe just speak to uh, too if you can. Um, uh, are there any boundaries that we do need to be a little bit aware of when we are developing uh, this legal tech? Yeah, I, I I'll lend support to what my uh, colleagues have, have said here. I, I see it as an augment, uh, augmenting dynamic. Some of the existential threats, I think, are overstated. I'm on the record having published, for example, with respect to the integration of programmable blockchains to use smart contracts to replace conventional contracts in uh, sophisticated financial transactions. And there's a number of reasons both in terms of ex-ante programming costs to the desirability of not locking into some form of automated logic why you wouldn't even want to use those. And so the, the existential threats of pushing lawyers completely out are in, in many ways overstated, but in some ways real. There, there's definitely in, in the process of augmenting and making legal services more efficient. There's definitely some things that are currently done by lawyers that can be done in easier, cheaper, and more efficient ways, and hopefully pass those savings on to the user of legal services. And in some ways that can you know, form the basis of an existential threat to the legal profession because it could lead to more jobs, and so that 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 or could lead to less jobs, uh, or potential less profitability of certain firms, and so then that leads to a bit of a paradigm shift, which is I think is the time and space we're in right now about reconceptualizing the idea of a lawyer as counselor, the nature of the provision of legal services away from maybe task-based to more broad business. 
advisory base and the value add that a true counselor can provide. Right. Yeah. And I don't think you're going to get too many associates push, pushing back on uh, having their doc review uh, outsourced <laughs> to a, an AI solution. I know I've been uh, in those rooms and they're, they're not too fun. Uh, but sort of just, uh, and I'll stick with you here, Ryan, for my second mm -hmm. question and sort of sticking on the same point. So uh, how can the legal profession harvest learnings from other industries, uh, for example, fintech, which obviously is mm -hmm. your specialty, and apply them in practical ways to how lawyers practice or how we structure our practice? Uh, you know, we're seeing just, it seems like... Uh, super fast evolution in so many other mm -hmm. areas where and maybe it's just my perception, but there's still a bit of hesitancy uh, at times, it seems, in the legal profession to start adopting these uh, time-saving technologies. Uh, any any mm -hmm. insights that you have on that? Yes, definitely. So in framing the comparison, I want to create a bit of a separation, I guess, visually here. On the one hand, we'll use fintech. On the one hand, fintech, a lot of people think about fintech and they think about the disruptors, the new market entrants, tech firms who want to do something that a conventional bank or investment dealer or payments provider does. And they say, we can actually do this cheaper. We can pass on the savings to consumers, we can create financial inclusion, and we can still be profitable. So that's on the one side. And then on the other side of FinTech, and I'll, I'll deal with both of these, there's the actual incumbent legacy institutions who are already operating in the space, who ask the question of how can we integrate technology into our current processes to enhance consumer loyalty to compete with these disruptors on the other side and to provide better and lower cost services and consumer welfare on this side. And so there, there are direct comparisons in law. You have on the one side, pure disruptors, potential for legal services to be provided by non-lawyers through tech. Now in the disruption space in FinTech, the primary consideration here is actually the regulatory framework. So we're looking at things like sandboxes. We're looking at how should we regulate these new disruptive market entrants? Should we regulate them exactly the same way as we regulate banks or investment dealers? Should we provide exemptive relief to facilitate innovation? What are the risks? Is it same activity, same risk, same regulation? that largely ends up being a concern of the regulator. And you see movement in this space in FinTech with respect to the regulator themselves looking at balancing innovation support of regulatory accommodation with balancing the potential risk in this. And you see the regulators adjusting and this is a live space. And on the legal side, when it comes to tech firms providing legal services without being a lawyer, this is where it becomes pressing on the law societies to consider this, to consider mm -hmm. the extent that the provision of legal services can be provided by tech firms. Okay, when we start talking about the other side, which is in the fintech world, banks themselves integrating some type of a technology process to lower their cost of service and pass on the savings to the consumers. The analog here is the law firms integrating these augmenting technology processes to facilitate 
cheaper, better services. Now, the challenge here is actually one of incentives of the law firms themselves, because in order to do this, we need to invest. And sometimes the investment is in the long run. It's beyond the life of the partner themselves. Yes. They're pushing out short-term income for something that's going to provide a benefit to the firm long-term. That can actually be a big friction to the take-up of these types of legal services. And it's particular, but it's challenging. It's a challenging dynamic because we're you're almost at a assuming that the regulator of legal services isn't going to allow these market entrants. Right. But the market entrants are knocking on the door of the regulator saying, hey, we have consumer welfare benefits. We have access to justice benefits. We can actually fill gaps that aren't being filled on this side. And so two things need to happen. On the one hand, the regulatory accommodation and the bouncing. But on this hand, law firms being willing to invest in the future. Absolutely. And being willing to move away from short terminism. And I think you touched on it. And don't even get me started, obviously, on the partnership models. We've uh, we've discussed that one a few times already. Uh, but for sure, the incentives seem to be at the end of the day. And, and the outward pressure saying, especially when you get these new companies coming in and saying, actually, we do have this solution and we can do this. Uh, I think that's mm -hmm. going to put pressure on the traditional model to, to you know, hopefully... Uh, adapt to these. Uh, Samuel, let's uh, turn it back to you, uh, especially uh, obviously you're going to take it from a bit of a different perspective, but I'd love to hear the, your thoughts on that, whether there's lessons learned in other industries that uh, could be applied to kind of the traditional space here. Yeah, yeah, actually a very different perspective because recently um, my latest research project is is on the vaccine and, and vaccine compensation, especially when, when um, related to adverse side of, uh, reactions. So, so and I've noticed I've been looking a lot at what the health industry has been doing and, and clearly they're way more advanced than we are. And, and you could say, one could say, oh, you know, but I mean, legal decisions are, I mean, it's probably less complex maybe than, than making a health decision or a medical diagnose, diagnosis. And you could say as well, oh, but, um, and the stakes also maybe a little bit lower. And, and, and the thing here is I would actually be very cautious. I've, I've read that a few, a, a few, on a few occasions. And there, I think in my opinion, there are a few problems with that argument. The first one is that, uh, as I said before, law is reflexive uh, um, tool. And, and it's, it's very complex because it can be influenced by a lot of factors. Where an, whereas a, a medical decision, for, for instance, is more in, invariant reality. So if when a doctor says you have cancer, uh, you are like someone has diabetes, it's an invariant, it doesn't change. And and you could say, okay, definitely doctors, scientists, and we've seen that with COVID, that they don't agree all the time. And actually quite a lot. They, don't, they tend to disagree quite a lot. So that could be also a, a very complex in that regard. Whereas in law, I mean, for example, determining whether someone is an independent contractor or an employee, a lot of cases are very borderline. I mean, there's a fine line. It really depends on the technique, depends on the judge. It depends also on external factor. You could say also, uh, oh, um, employ a, a, a bunch of employees were terminated uh, during COVID-19, and maybe you know they will go to court, and the judge will decide to give a longer notice period because of COVID. And that's so that's a reality that changes because of external because of external factors. 
So, so when we look at this from a computer science perspective, that's really complicated. So, so that's why I think in a way, AI is actually quite amazing to flag and identify outliers when something is slightly different. So for example, we've seen a lot of work on uh, racial biases and so on. So, mm -hmm. so, so for example, in the case of refugee law, if judges tend to make a decision, tend to reject, deny claims based on the country of origin, that's a problem. Or, or for example, the example I was giving in employment law, if judges tend to make decisions, tend to give longer notice period in the case of an employment termination because of, because of the economic reality. So, but, so, and that's definitely not the kind of lesson we could learn right. from medical science because medical science is just very, it, their, their reality is more invariant. Absolutely. No, and that's, I think, a great distinction that uh, obviously when you bring in more human factors, it's it's maybe a little bit less clear and, and the lessons yeah. may not be able to be as easily transferred over as in some other areas. Uh, JP, last thoughts on this and don't worry, you get the first question next time. So uh, <laughs> uh, any, any thoughts on, uh, yeah, that, uh, that, that division there? I wouldn't even go as far as saying looking at other industries. I think, I think it's pertinent, but I would also look at other professions. And when I talk about innovation, innovation is just not only technology, it's, it's a whole series of practices, but also technology. Um, I mean, the example I always give is surgeons. So there's a, there's a fairly well-known book about um, use, the use of checklists and how it has improved the, the rate or reduced the rate of errors for surgeons using checklists. So they did a study with about 8,000, over 8,000 surgeries in seven different hospitals, developed world, undeveloped world, uh, or developing world. Um, you know, 4,000 surgery without this checklist, 4,000 surgery after a checklist, and just the use of a, you know, a small checklist was reducing the errors by 34%. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when it, it, this is major, and, and, and I remember when I started practicing law, my, my old mentor said to me, like, essentially, law is about managing risk. You're managing, everything you're doing is about managing risk for your clients. You're managing risk through litigation, to drafting agreements, uh, drafting documents, providing advice. Um, so if, if we are about managing risk, you, you look at other profession and how they're managing risk in their own ways, there are things that you know, it might not be applicable to law, but there are a lot of models that can be important in law. Like I, I you know, in my career, I was lucky enough to practice in a large national law firm and in, in, in the second biggest accounting firm in the world. Um, and basically, you know, there's pros and cons. And, and I remember at the time uh, when I left big law, innovation was like, essentially my vision of innovation was to have more leverage. And then I got to the accounting side of things and I saw the limit of leverage and how if, you know, if not properly put in place, you can actually increase risk or, you know, dilute the product, uh, have all kinds of other problems. So, so I think lawyers need to look around, have a critical view about it, but also I think they need to reflect also on their own way of practicing and own a and, you know, in that sense, I remember a few years back, um, I was at uh, one of the ABA conference in the U.S. and uh, James Sandman had done a paper on, you know, 10 reasons why law is slow to adopt um, technology or innovate. And, and I think, you know, I think it's pertinent just to just to think about them. Like, and I, I'm just going to quickly go through the list. So, I mean, the, the obvious one is the first one. It's regulatory system and everybody's talking about it. I think it is definitely a factor, but I think in some, in many cases, there's um, lots of good stories where people have managed to innovate within the regular the regulatory system. 
Um, the second one, the judicial system in Canada or in the US, for example, is fragmented. We're dealing like, you know, for corporate law, you're dealing with 14 different jurisdictions, different level of innovation. You go from, you know, provinces where you're filing everything paper, other provinces is electronic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's really hard when you're dealing with that. Um, insufficient capital for innovation. And I think this goes to the, the structure of law firm themselves, like the partnership are not conducive to invest capital and invest into long-term innovation. And, and uh, yeah, and then a pricing model, the pricing model, if you have a, a, you know, a pricing model based on an hourly rate, it's not conducive to improving, you know, productivity. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, the partnership, you know, decision, it's, it's based on consensus or uh, as well. So it's, it's hard to get everybody to move in the same direction. It's, and, and, and instead of like a top down decision where you have, you know, executive officers that are pushing uh, in a direction, um, you know, risk management and, and malpractice insurance. Like we, we live on empirical processes that have been developed over generations. Most law firms, you know, um, my old firm had the, 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 the founding firm or the, the first firm was from the 1840s and it's these process has been built over time and it's empirical how they've they're slowly improving but they're not and, and the insurance the way the insurance is structured is you're not encouraged to move too far out or too far away from the pack you want to you stay and, and, and keep the process um, as clean as possible or, or as you know as close as possible where everything is um legal system is based on the rule of precedence we always look behind we don't look forward yes when you think about this we're we're by nature we're trained to look at what happened behind us not ahead of us um you know uh the training also like project management and teaching you know other thing that's substantive law also is 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 one of of these factors um you know the also the illegal education and very often emphasize on on what I would call a lorry judgment. And I'm sure everybody here has been the victim of it at one point where you send an agreement to another party or a document to another party and come back and the red line is just all <laughs> red, not because there was anything wrong with your document, but because the person would have yeah. written it differently. And they just, you know, uh, an example. And, and the personality of lawyers, lawyers are by nature more risk adverse people. So I think we got to look at these, you know, these are just a sample of 10 probably factors um, that makes it harder for lawyers to adopt and then probably find strategy to tackle each single one of them, I think. And, and I think that this is, there's no way of getting around this. Absolutely. Yeah, there's certainly some structural uh, issues uh, within the legal profession, especially in North America. And I think you hit on a lot of great ones that, frankly, we could probably talk about for an hour each. Um, but uh, and I will just give a quick shout out to you. I, I did read the Checklist Manifesto and highly encourage it. And it's actually a great uh, example of uh, taking some lessons from the medical field and applying it into law. Uh, so, yeah, I, that was a fantastic book. So for any of you who uh, may be uh, looking for some of those um, uh, those ways to integrate other lessons, you know, you can bring it back here. But uh, just to just to close off that loop there, Ryan, and we're running a touch short on time. But uh, maybe just uh, finish finish that question, which are like, what are the biggest hurdles lawyers are facing to integrating, um, you know, uh, that that innovation and technology into their practice? And again, JP, you just mentioned a, but, a bunch, but uh, Ryan, any any that stand out to you? I think that that was a fantastic list. I think that that was a very fulsome list. And I think that there's a lot to unpack there. I think 
as, as I mentioned before, I don't think we can deny the fact that there's some misaligned incentives here and that the, that the operation of a law firm is different than the operation of a conventional corporate structure. And so the incentives to retain earnings and to retain capital for the long-term benefit of the shareholders is different than a, than a partnership model that is looking for distribution on an annual basis. It changes the nature of the incentives. It changes the nature of what's tracked. The, the billable hour creates a pathology that, that mm -hmm. disincentivizes long-term thinking. I think that there's – the other thing that we have to think about, too, is like – what are the risks of increased technology adoption, like the ex-ante training burden it puts on associates? Does that have some type of a of a impact where maybe as you know associates and young lawyers are coming out of law school? I see this in teaching students. You know, that's the range of interests are broader now then maybe it seemed like they were when I was a 1L student. It seemed like most of us were just heading into, into big law or heading into, into the traditional legal practice mode of delivery where you, I, I get students routinely who are wanting to go earlier into in-house settings or outside of law or entrepreneurial or policy dynamics. And, and so you start wondering, like, well, if, if part of being a lawyer is not just meeting these heavy billable hour, hour mm -hmm. targets, but it's also having to learn new software that I don't get to bill on, it could be a deterrent to even taking up this area of practice. So it's, it's an area, like you say, I hate, I hate to echo it, but it's something that deserves a more fulsome discussion that we really have to unpack. I don't think that there's a single thing that is like, this is, this is the friction here. I think it's a compounding level of, of um, factors. Absolutely. Samuel, kick it to you. Uh, thank you, Ryan. Great points. Uh, Samuel, kick it to you for some final, final thoughts here. Maybe, uh, maybe in your world, especially because you do seem to have that um, connection to the uh, you know, computer science departments and everything else, maybe you're seeing a, a few more advancements and, uh, and a loosening of this, uh, uh, this area and adopting that legal tech. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's so I definitely agree with my uh, co-panelist. I mean, it is a problem with like risk aversion, lawyers are risk, more risk averse. I mean, the misalignment of interest and so on in this, that, that's specific to the law firm, to the legal world. However, but we need to think also realize that it, it is not only a legal problem. I mean, adoption of technology has always been a problem. And, and for example, IBM has been heavily criticized for investing too much in AI when it was a great technology, but then nobody wants that they're like yeah great and so and even now i mean the kind of stuff that we do for example so i've got projects like super computer science heavy deep learning with computer vision for trademark and patents but to be honest i mean a lot of these surfers don't work really well so it's a lot of very complex methods that the, the results are not great maybe they'll be great in five years maybe in six months maybe in 10 years and the stuff that actually worked really well like for example our, our prediction on like uh, worker status or vaccine injury is like 95%. We use very, very basic methods. And and the adoption rate is great. So sometimes we need to think also about do we really need to go like big, like super expensive technology. And so, so that's our thing. And that's not only related to the legal field. And also, I mean, this adoption problem in the legal field, I think I encountered that when I moved to uh, Canada a few years ago. And I was like, oh, I was in practice. I'm just going to approach a bunch of lawyers. So, and I'm just going to present the idea of like, we're going to work with your data and build a system, an intelligent negotiation system. And so now when you 
settle a personal injury dis uh, claim or you settle a employment dispute, um, you're going to have access to like this wealth of data on past negotiation, past employment agreements, and the case law. So what I got, like the kind of response until now, recently, and big thumbs up to BLG and Fasken, who are our first uh, industry partner. We, we, we formalized a, a couple of partnership grants with them to work on their data. But like the original response was like, oh, that's wonderful, but no, we're not going to shoot. You know, you're not going to work on our data. So it, it, and 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 it's growing and i think one solution and as my colleague said like there are many other solutions i think it could go back to the legal education i mean and and i think we law professors and law schools are kind of guilty because the law school system is very much a numbers game like we are you you know how what is your lsat how what are your grades and we don't go for like this entrepreneurial candidates and and we don't also mm -hmm. offer a lot of law and tech or law and entrepreneurial class. And I'm not saying only, I'm not only talking about the regulation of technology. I'm also talking about the creation of technology, just helping lawyers to work with a digital marketing person. I mean, for example, I mean, I didn't know that what was UX designer. Most of my students didn't know what was that about. And then now they're working with one and they understand that, oh, you know, the button click has to be there. I mean, these are like very basic stuff, maybe for people who are not lawyers, but for us, it's a big deal. Yes. So I think this is the kind of stuff that also needs to go through education and also the way we select lawyers. I know like American law schools now, a lot of American law schools are organizing interviews for the, and, like, and in Canada, we still, like a lot of law schools do not have interviews. So I'm not saying all lawyers have to be entrepreneurs. I'm saying that there should be a bit of them that have a mix of both. And you know what my colleagues were saying in the bit, what you were seeing in the previous panel was like, first year people want to save the world. Third year they're obsessed with architecture position. So, so also, okay, so that's a market-related, labor market-related problem. Maybe they're, you know, the market is tight and so on. But I think we also, as professors, we should really encourage that mindset. Say, yeah, do your articling position, become a good lawyer. But maybe in a few years, if you are interested, it's a great thing. Just do something else in-house or even start your own company. Absolutely. Uh, very well said. And look, uh, gentlemen, as I said in my email yesterday, I knew this time was going to pass way too fast. Uh, thank you so much for being part of this panel. Uh, I am going to put in a final and completely shameless plug here. Uh, I knew, like I said, I knew this session was going to fly by. So if you want to hear more from our panelists, please go to the uh, Future of Law podcast by Good Lawyer. Uh, Ryan and JP have already been on and I uh, see them as reoccurring guests. And whether Samuel knows it or not, he'll be a guest soon as well so uh, we'll definitely be able to to dig a bit more into these topics and uh that was yeah again i know we just scratched the surface but thank you so much for the great insights uh it was a pleasure having you and uh again we'll talk soon If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out goodlawyer.ca slash podcast, where you'll find every episode along with the show notes and resources. You can also sign up for Good Lawyer's newsletter that keeps you up to date on all the info and tools you need to turn your business into a rocket ship. Until next time, we hope you have a great week.